0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Steven Eisenstadt. Steve Eisenstadt is the founding president of Pacifica Graduate Institute and a practicing clinical psychologist. He has explored the power of dreams through depth psychology and his own research for more than 35 years, which centers on a psychodynamic process of tending the living image, particularly in the context of dream work. With Sounds True, Steve has created an audio program called Dreamtending, Techniques for Uncovering the Hidden Intelligence of Your Dreams, where he invites the listener to tap into the quote-unquote world unconscious, the living, dreaming mind of the universe itself. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Steve and I spoke about the concept that dreams are quote-unquote alive, and not just conceived from our personal unconscious. We talked about how a dream image could have a relationship with us, just like we have a relationship with a dream image. We also talked about how to work with an image through dream tending, and what it might mean that the body is always dreaming. And finally, we talked about the contribution of dream tending on the field of dream interpretation. Here's my conversation with Dr. Stephen Eisenstadt. Steve, you've developed this very interesting approach to working with dreams. And I have to say it's unlike any other approach to dream interpretation I've ever experienced. And so I want to begin just by really getting an understanding of your approach which you call dream tending and this core idea that you teach which is in dream tending we consider our dreams as if they are alive our dreams are alive the dream figures are alive what do you mean by that our dreams and the dream figures are alive
1: well that's exactly so it's as if um Tammy when you're actually experiencing the dream as the dream is taking place. Uh, It's not written down in the narrative, nor is it part of a dream journal. There's actual figures that are interacting with one another. They have body. They have presence. uh, They have a sense of their own autonomy and independence. uh, And they're imagined and have an actual living quality to them. So when I'm working with a dream or I'm tending to a dream, I allow that their living presence to be in the room along with me and the dreamer. So when I say dreams are alive, I'm imagining from the beginning that that's just so, that the imagination is active, alive, and actually has a presence, even though, of course, it's an invisible presence. uh, There's still a sense of those figures uh, having an influence and impact on each of us in terms of our behavior, in terms of our health, in terms of our predisposition, in terms of our relationship with one another and so on.
0: No, but I want to be clear if I understand something here. This is not just an interpretive technique. You actually believe that the dream figures, for example, if I dream of a coyote, that this isn't just a product of my unconscious, the coyote might mean this or that, but that this image is actually a living force in some way.
1: That's exactly right. And I actually have that conviction that when coyote comes into a dream, just notice how I did that. Instead, of The coyote, which then leads to an interpretation, anything from a trickster image or um, something of a coyote like an animal on the prowl, which might be related to a family of origin figure or a boss or a friend or something along those lines. No, I actually experience the coyote as a living force an entity that's now in the dream time that is in the room along with the two of us. So it has its own emotional valence and its own actual living presence. Yes.
0: Now I can imagine a lot of people at this point just going, excuse me, wait a second. A dream is something that's produced from the unconscious. Yes, there's a story, images, but they don't exist separately on their own as living beings separate from the dreamers unconscious process
1: well that's true and actually you know i think um all dreams that come through us implicate us in some way so there is clearly a relationship to um, my family of origin experience circumstances of the day um from the archetypal which means the kind of the patterns that the human experience moves through in one way or the next. So I do have a sense that that is the case, that that we are implicated in a particular way. At the same time, I think that the the images have a living actuality on behalf of themselves. Um, So I do believe that they um, do visit and impact our lives. In fact, the questions that I lead with from the beginning are questions that go more towards who's busy now and what's happening, what's the actual activity of what's going on in the dream, versus the two other questions that are interpretive, which are, what does this mean and why is this happening? And that's what we're mostly trained into, are those two questions. And yes, they're valuable. It's just that I start from the other direction, first the image and then the explanation.
0: Okay now I'm going to keep gnawing on this issue for a little bit because I think once one really understands at least in my experience what you mean by dreamtending, it's like the whole world sort of shifts and and here's what I mean by that I would like to understand from the theory of dream tending what you think is going on in the world altogether with I'm serious Steve
1: I hear you. I hear how serious you are, and I think it's incredibly serious. I do. On a, on many levels. And you know, I'm a I once was a public school teacher. I'm a therapist. I'm a university professor and and uh a chancellor of this institution. So I'm a, a pragmatist, you know. I really care about the actuality of people's lives and how they're in in relation to one another and how a business works and all those kinds of things. So it is serious. And what I mean by that is that I start from the place where I experience the imagination has an actuality, is real. So, for example, in when you watch children and they're engaged in children's play, right, And you can imagine their imaginary friends that they have. You know, I I just don't think that's wrong or pathological. I think that they're actually interacting with the invisibles that are part of their imagination. And then, of course, you go into public education or you go into a private school and you begin to get that trained out of you. And we do that because we subscribe so keenly to the philosophy of science, trying to make meaning out of everything so quickly. And as a result, we take the inspiration or the figures that really mentor us or muse our you know our most creative thinking, they seem to go away. And in dream tending we do just the opposite. We start with the actuality that the imagination is still alive and active and has a kind of intelligence of its own. So if we can hear the figures speak on behalf of themselves, we then can listen to and develop relationship with that kind of intelligence, that kind of presentation that the psyche offers us.
0: Let's see if we can break this down a little bit. Our imagination is real. I'm now imagining somebody listening to this and saying, you know, look, a little kid, they're talking to an imaginary playmate. There's nothing pathological about that. It might be very healthy, but that doesn't mean that the imaginary playmate is quote-unquote real, it just means they're talking to themselves in a harmless way.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, but one can extrapolate, right? Let's imagine an engineer who's designing a bridge, for example, or a person that's uh, a, a scientist who is thinking about the next evolution of what's possible. Certainly they're trained in their skills, you know, deductive reasoning. They're trained in the craft of, of their profession, of course, you know. Uh, at the same time, there's something that comes in that is innovative and creative and goes beyond the ordinary, and it's that which comes in that pushes the envelope, that's beyond the ordinary, that I think originates in the imagination, and it's from that point of view I think the imagination is real. So another way of understanding this, in very practical, simple terms, because it it ought not be metaphysical or complicated or esoteric. In very practical terms, we are inspired, or there's something uh, that muses us often uh, when we're with another person or when we're with a project or when we're figuring out uh, a, a mathematical equation for that matter there's something that comes in that muses or sparks our intuition our intelligence. And from my point of view, it's that something that comes in which has that quality of an imaginal figure. So all the great stories talk about that. The muse that is alive and active, that kind of pushes our experience and somehow evokes us into something out of the ordinary, something other than what we might do if we just follow the straight and and narrow path
0: okay but let's say right in this moment and I'm asking these questions because I really want to understand your theory of dream tending in this moment I imagine a rainbow right here in the room let's say that I dreamt about a rainbow last night do either one of those things make the rainbow alive and real or aren't I just imagining it or dreaming it
1: well, there's um, there's a bit of a difference. When the rainbow comes in the dream, right, one wonders who's dreaming the rainbow. Is it me, Steve, or Tammy that's dreaming the rainbow? Or has rainbow come into the dream from the deeper source of the imagination? And from my point of view, there's something else at work in our lives when our Eyes closed, something else comes awake, and the question is, what comes awake? And in this instance, rainbow comes into our experience. So we can look at rainbow and say, yes, you know, that that has a quality of the rainbow serpent. Or I mean, there's hundreds of explanations of rainbow. Or that's the transition from one place to the next. Or those are the the rainbow is something uh, important and significant and represents something of abundance in our life. You know, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And we can make all those kinds of interpretations, which is our tendency. On the other hand, from the point of view of dream tending, when rainbow comes into a dream, I'm curious as to the actuality of that particular rainbow. How is that rainbow different from any other rainbow that I've experienced? I invite the rainbow as a living image into the room, and I allow the rainbow to tell me what it's about, rather than me talking to rainbow and imagining that I know what its significance is. So you see the difference?
0: I understand the difference in the approach and how fruitful it can be. I think I'm still befuddled at what it means that the rainbow is, quote-unquote, alive.
1: Well, the the rainbow—first, I love these Uh, questions—the rainbow— Uh, is alive in the sense that it's not fixed. You know, once a rainbow is fixed, in other words, once I say, a rainbow appeared in my dream, and now rainbow means this, uh, and then I start to relate it to uh, a transition in my life, which may be true. Uh, I may relate it to something of uh, wealth, which may be true. I may relate it to something of multidimensional colors, and something new and interesting and a threshold that I'm moving through. Uh, And that may be true also. But as soon as I do that, as soon as I make that move, you see that I'm in my mind, I'm already made an interpretation, and there goes rainbow, right? There's no longer a rainbow. Only what's left is the explanation of the rainbow. On the other hand, if I can keep the rainbow alive and active, it's not that I dismiss all those other explanations. I mean, they're all part of it. However, if rainbow is alive, it stays with me the rest of the day, you know? And it may even change. It may, the colors may change, and it may uh, lead me or inspire me or, or emotionally move me to do something that I would not otherwise do. So I try to keep the images alive and active in my life. And uh, when I'm working with folks, when we tend to dreams in this way, those images are really invited to be the visitants. Uh, of our experience and stay with us, like companions might stay with us for the next number of hours or days.
0: Okay, Steve, I'm going I'm to keep going on this. It's really the same point that I keep saying over and over again, because as you mm-hmm. describe that, and I think of working with an image like rainbow from a dream, I see how useful that could be. I really do. Mm-hmm. I'm no longer in my head analyzing something and calling it dead and complete there's a companion with me now, Rainbow, and we're going through the day and it's changing and I'm changing and we're dialoguing with each other. I actually get that. I think the part that disturbs me is to think that the rainbow is alive in the same way that I'm alive or my friend that I work with is alive or my dog is alive. Is Rainbow really alive like that?
1: Well, that's a great question. Uh, That would disturb me too. No, I don't think rainbow is alive like that, actually. I think rainbow has uh, an imaginal life, but not necessarily a life that is similar to your dog or to me or to a friend. Uh, but they, they do have an imaginal presence, for sure. Um, and I think that to the extent that we experience them as the figures of imagination as living entities, is the extent that we then are able to develop a relationship with them. Of course, not the same relationship with a physical person, yet a relationship that's just as intimate. We learn to befriend them, to tend to them, to really get to know them. And in turn, you know, from my point of view, which does sound a little, I suspect, different, uh, they also get to know us. So from my point of view, just to move it a little further still, um, those images have a certain sense of body and presence, as me, Steve, as a person, has a certain sense of body and presence. Are we the same? Of course not. Do we have the capacity to develop a relationship with one another? Of course we do. I mean, how many people in the world um, have relationships with a certain sense of themselves or a certain figure that's been important for them in their lives? Or how many people in the world remember one of their uh, elders, a great-grandfather or an aunt or a a grandparent uh, that's died, but still is alive in imagination. So you have a relationship with that figure, not as a physicality, but with an imaginal sensibility.
0: So I understand that I could have a relationship with Rainbow in my imaginal life. It's harder for me to understand Rainbow having a relationship with me?
1: Well, let's just imagine it this way. Imagine for a moment that um, Somebody comes into your life in a dream and the figure is somebody that you've known in the past In fact, let's imagine it's a great-grandparent that um, was important to you at one point in time Um, but uh, of course has been dead now for decades, Um, and yet that figure comes into dream, and there is a sense of getting to know that one, and then the idea is, as we get to know that person, as in my world, as you animate or enliven or allow that person its imaginal presence, so that dream image comes alive, so grandparent now is alive in your experience, then my Idea is that that figure gets to know us as much as we get to know him or her, right? And when you actually invite the figure into the room, I mean, we do this all the time. We have a kind of sense that we're being supported or mentored by these invisibles. Uh, I mean, some traditions might call them guardian angels, but I, I rather stick with the actuality of the image in the dream. We have a sense that they get to know us as much as we get to know them, right, if we are in conversation, that's the whole notion of friendship. We befriend them, and then they in turn have the capacity to know who we are more deeply and offer themselves to us i 'll tell you very practically speaking when I because of what I do in the world, you know so I 'm in front of either uh, big groups of people, I work with the uh, United Nations, so i 'm giving a talk in front of an assemblage of folk, or I'm down at the county council meeting dealing with land use issues, or I'm in a a group of college presidents and university chancellors, and I'm offering a presentation. When I'm in front of those groups of people, when I walk in simply on my own behalf, and I'm trained to do that, and I have a, a lot of experience in doing that, so certainly I bring in my intelligence, my background, I bring in my expertise, my particular point of view, I bring in my research, I bring in my scholarship, I do all those things. However, it's really different when I walk into that group and I walk in not simply as Steve, but I invite these others who I've now befriended through this craft of dream tenting, great-grandfather, for example, or even Rainbow, uh, if I invite them to companion me into the conversation, I feel supported by some buddy or a force in addition to myself, and I come across differently, right? Something different happens in those presentations when those figures are there with me.
0: It sounds very shamanic as you're speaking, meaning shamanic practitioners who would invoke guides or helping spirits or something like that.
1: You know, <laughs> on one hand, it probably does sound shamanic. On the other hand, let me tell you a story. They, there was a group of American educators that went to China, right? And they, and, you know, we're so proud of ourselves in American education because we've now developed the skill set to uh, teach to the test, to do evidence-based learning. Um, you know, we're really big on assessment. We've really cultivated the craft of scientizing learning starting from now, I think, first grade, because, you know, we start teaching kids how to get a good score in their SAT around second grade, if not before. So we're very big on that kind of educational program. And this blue ribbon panel went to China to talk with a group of their elite educators, imagining that they would go over there and meet with real um, affection and regard, because, of course, our stereotype is our our fantasy is from the Chinese point of view, you know, that's of course what they would do. They would be very homogenized and everything would be sequential and everything would be organized in a way that people could, you know, digest and then harmonize into their society. Well, they listened very respectfully, as of course would be the case. Uh, and then they looked at these folks, these American, this elite group of American educators, and they just were shaking their head. They said, you know, it's so curious. Uh, That's what we were doing 20 years ago. Now what we do is instead we bring back music and we bring back the arts and we bring back the imagination into the classroom starting in grade one because what we know is that if we support imagination, if we allow the dreaming psyche to continue to be a part of a person's life, that the quality of their life will be better and that they will have a different kind of a different kind of innovation, a different kind of capacity to innovate and to really be in the modern world where things are changing so quickly. And look what's happening. I mean, where is the great innovation happening in the world today? Yes, indeed, still in the United States and other countries. Also in China, because they are bringing that kind of work back into the school, working with kids all the way through high school and then into college. So shamanic, yes. Yes but really practical in addition.
0: It sounds to me that part of what you're really standing for in your work with dream tending is a different view of the imagination than one that is held in our rationalist society, that you're really wanting to stand and say, we need to look at the imagination differently.
1: I think that is really, quite frankly, right at the center of it, yes. I do think so. And I think most of the ways that we work with dream, although instructive, it's not that I, you know, I've been brought up with all the traditional modalities and, and have experienced them and have gotten great benefit. It's just that there's an, uh, an expense to that. And the cost to that is that we lose the imagination. So my preference is to stand for the imagination as alive and active and embodied and engaged first, and then allow the images that come in dream to invite the stories from my personal history, the circumstances of the day, the the themes that come from the collective unconscious. I allow the images to come and invite them into our lives. So I do believe that, yeah, at bottom there is a real stand for the imagination as being an integral part of our lives and an important part.
0: Okay, so let's just move into the dream-tending approach. I have a dream, whether it's of a great grandparent or a rainbow or a broken vase. How would I work with that image through dream-tending?
1: Well, uh, we start with settling ourselves and listening. And... I guess the hardest part when I'm working with people in terms of offering them an approach to the dream from this perspective, is to let go the need to know what the answer is so quickly. right So great-grandparent comes, or boss comes, uh, and instead of saying, "Oh, the vase is empty, that's how I'm feeling. It needs to be filled with something. Do you see how my mind so quickly jumps in and makes an explanation? Or great-grandparent comes. Oh, great-grandparent comes. That means um, that I am you know, afflicted with a sense of being overbearing because that person was overbearing. You know, Whatever. We start to make explanations. Dream-tended would start from a different place. And it would say, Voss is here now. Or great-grandparent is here now. Rather than what do you mean, we simply take a deep breath get quiet, and invite that figure, as we would a friend, into relationship with us. So how that looks concretely is if I'm working with somebody with a dream, or if a person is, for that matter, working with their own dream, on their own, instead of immediately going to explanation, they might write, uh, they might sketch the figure, or they might um, have a conversation in their journal with the figure and allow the figure to have its own voice, to respond back so that you go back and forth in a kind of dialogue, yes? Or if a creature comes into a dream, let's say a giraffe or a zebra or a tiger, let's take a tiger. If a tiger comes in the dream, instead of imagining that that tiger means something like aggression or that tiger means something like, um, you know, I am ferocious or, you know, I have a tiger in my tank (laughs) or whatever that might be, instead of going there so quickly the 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 method or the tool i would suggest would be to first get settled forget that i know any of the answers invite tiger although in safety with you know into the room and sketch it out how is this tiger different than any other tiger just that one move looking at the particularity of tiger how is this particular tiger different than the general category tiger just that and something different happens because the tiger then takes on uh, a quality of its own and now it's in the room along with the dreamer.
0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. If you're interested in listening to previous episodes of Insights at the Edge, they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program. For more information, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, you have been dropping the articles instead of saying the tiger, it's tiger who comes into the room. What's the reason for dropping the the or an a when you're talking about dream image?
1: Yeah. Um, it's, it's the easiest thing. There's a number of skills that are really simple to, to digest and to get a sense of. And one is to drop the articles. Instead of the tiger chased me through the forest, That's talking about the dream in the past tense as if it was happening last night, which is how we usually do it. If you drop the articles, and we drop the past tense and bring it into the present tense, just those two simple skills. Tiger is chasing me through the forest. Notice the difference. The significance of tiger without the article becomes more uh, embodied, more actual, and the present tense brings the actuality of the dream into my experience much more directly and, and in fact when we're in the dream that's what's going on right it's not it didn't happen yesterday we're in the dream when the dream is actually taking place in a living way so there is a sense of presence from the beginning
0: so right here in the beginning dream tending assumes that people are waking up and remembering their dreams and, and having clarity about these images. What would you say to somebody who has trouble remembering their dreams in the beginning?
1: Well, you know, as I travel worldwide, that's one of the questions is asked. So uh, a couple things. One is um, most of the time we seem to dismiss the little snippets of dreams. Oh, that's not the grand dream that I was hoping for, right? So the first thing before anything else is just sometimes we have just a hint or a snippet, or just a a memory of something that's small that is seemingly insignificant. So I encourage people just to jot that down, because often just that is enough to get things going. The second thing I suggest is to take a pen or a pencil uh, to your bedside and just put it there, along with a dream journal, or sometimes people are using laptops, and know that, you know, um, tonight... I'm going to remember my dream. And you say that three times to yourself. Tonight, I'm going to remember my dreams three times over. And then before we wake up in the morning and before we immediately go into the day's activities, or as you might be surprised, (laughs) I just did a lecture in Europe on the uh, impact of uh, machines and technology and screen time. Forty percent of folk will check their um, iPhone, believe it or not, while they're still in bed, before they get out of bed interesting. So before we go into the world of things and demands and our agendas and and this, that and the other, just taking those few moments and allowing the remembrance of dream to come into our world and then to write them down so that if we practice that exercise, tonight I'm going to remember my dream three times and then upon awakening have something where we're writing. Already we're, we're planting the suggestion. Nothing more complicated than that. We're just planting the suggestion that dreams are important. And like any good friendship, when there's significance and when we pay attention, they tend to respond back.
0: Now, what would you say to someone who says, you know, this, this sounds nice. I'm now going to animate the dream image i'm going to draw it i'm going to spend time with it as my companion i mean i don't even have time for my actual physical companions in life i have a very busy day this all sounds very time consuming working with a dream image as my new friend during the day
1: well there's truth in that you know um it does take some time uh, because just i'll speak for myself it's a practice, right, like anything in life. It's, it's how we prioritize things. I know for myself, if I spend the 20 minutes in the morning and jot down the dream and then just simply write a few lines or, or just animate, allow it to come to life and, and bring it into my world some way, that I then approach the, day, the rest of the day differently than I would if I just woke up and just ran right into my day. And the reason for that is not, again, really esoteric. What's happening in that moment is that I'm inviting the imagination to be open and available, right? I'm allowing myself those moments of time. Let's say it's five minutes. Let's say it's 20 minutes. I'm allowing that amount of time to open a whole range of my human experience that I otherwise would not necessarily have direct contact with. And that will change what happens during the day, and I might say, just as doing this you know for for these years, and i again I really you know i'm the last person that would suggest to go along a path that would not be um, helpful in the world or in a relationship or in our in our community I mean at this point in time in our culture, I just feel that we have an ethical responsibility to attend to a community life and to the environment and to each other right so What I've discovered is that when I do that, when I take that time to engage the figures of dream or in some way engage imagination, I um, am more effective, not less effective, in what I do during the day. So in fact, that 20-minute investment in the morning pays tremendous dividends and saves me hours of time that I otherwise would be spinning around during the day. Because these figures on occasion will offer guidance. They'll support us we feel supported there's a sense of confidence there's also a sense of direction
0: maybe you could give us an example from your own dreaming life of dream tending in action and how it's proven effective for you
1: i think that's a great idea yes i will um let me just see if i can uh, do that in real time in the last 48 hours um, so, uh, not last night, but the night before, uh, a dream came forward. And in the dream, um, I noticed that there was um, a lake. Actually, it wasn't a lake. It was an ocean. And in the ocean, I noticed that there was uh, a path that led from the cliff down into the sea. And what I did is I walked in the dream. I'm walking uh, down the path to the the shore, to where the sea meets the sand. And as I do that, I look out to the sea, and I feel something different happen, just at that moment in time, as one would expect, I guess. And then what I noticed, that there was a seal that popped up from the ocean. Of course, I live in Santa Barbara, so I'm very familiar with the ocean. Of course, that would be an image that would not be out of the ordinary. And yet, in the dream, a seal popped up and looked at me. (laughs) And then I looked back. And that was it. Dream ended, okay. Now, it is so easy when these dreams come and they come like that, and you know, the minute I get involved with everything else in life, I have totally forgotten. I mean, I'm like everybody else, you know, if I don't write it down or if I don't attend to it in some way, I'm just going to go on with my life and never think about it again. I'll just not remember it. However, I had my dream journal next door, and I and I jotted that down, right? And I even sketched the seal a little bit, right? And I had such a feeling about being at that water's edge. And I had such a sense of that seal, not knowing at all what it meant. I mean, I could have made up, given that I'm a clinical psychologist and marriage family therapist and been doing psychology all these years, you know, I could have made up a whole variety of things as to what that might mean. And from a Jungian perspective, I could have, you know, gone to town with with the seal and, you know, Coming emerging from the ocean, and there's all kinds of archetypal themes that that might suggest, but rather than going there first, although you know you consider these things, but rather than going there, what I did that day, which was yesterday, is I just went through my day and I just had a sense of that ocean and that seal. Then what happened practically during the day is that we had a significant meeting here at Pacifica where I work, specifically where I'm the Chancellor, Graduate Institute, and there's a, a board meeting. And we had a particularly important set of it, which, you know, you almost always do at board meetings. But at this board meeting, there was a particularly important juncture where a big decision had to be made. And I tell you, I was just about to, you know, come in there with my voice and make my position known and advocate on behalf of what I thought was so correct. And for whatever reason, I took I stepped back and I remembered the dream. And in the dream, when I went to the ocean's edge, I just paused and I got a bigger perspective and I saw something out of the ordinary happen, which is the seal emerging. And I paused and I just remembered that for a moment. And I must say, in actuality, what happened is instead of charging in with my opinion at that moment, I just sat back, I listened more deeply, and I got curious really curiosity is a big part of this whole thing i got curious as to i wonder you know if i were here as i was in that meeting with people that really with real issues as i'm here in this meeting with all this going on if i just take a moment and allow for something else to come in you know another way of seeing all this what might that way be and i took that must have been like not more than what, a minute or two? And I just sat back and listened. And sure enough, you know, a whole other idea came into my imagination as to what I was going to advocate, which I ended up doing, which was very effective. So that's one way. And I don't really want to romanticize this, because I must say, you know, often when dreams come, the ones that we remember are not necessarily an ocean setting with a seal popping his or her head up and offering inspiration. I mean sometimes they're very frightening or sometimes they're very terrifying or there's something intolerable that happens. So I don't want to romanticize it. But just in that one instance, since it happened just two days back, I wanted to share that with you as an example. The
0: the example's helpful and it, it leads me to circle back to how we began our conversation because I, I do want to make sure that I'm clear about this part of dream tending. So the seal Did the seal come from your own unconscious mind, or was the seal a messenger from something beyond you? And I'll tell you the reason I'm asking this question. In your work with Dreamtending, there's this quote that I thought was very interesting, which is, the images don't just come from our psyche, but also from the psyche of nature. Uh, That's very, very interesting.
1: Yeah. It is interesting, and um, uh, it is one of the, the, at the heart, I think, of dream tending uh, one of the, the main ideas. Yeah, in part, it comes from certainly my own personal experience. You know, I mentioned that I live in Santa Barbara, so certainly that's a familiar image for me, you know, being at the ocean and a seal. So in part, it comes from my direct experience. In part, it may come from... Um, Something in my developmental history, something from childhood, you know, something special that happens, or a relationship that I have with animals. When animals come into my life, I always feel that there's something, you know, very significant or important about that. Um, So it comes from that place, I suspect. Um, Also, it probably picks up something from the great stories of the elder seal and the meaning of that, and we know the stories of the seal and the seal skin and all that kind of thing. But yes, I think in addition to all that, you know, where else do dream images originate? And from my point of view, they originate not only in the human experience. They also originate in the psyche of nature. It's as if the image of seal originated in the actuality of seal in the ocean, making its presence known in the dreams that are happening for me in this instance or for people. And believe me, at this point in human evolution, it seems to be, more and more important that we begin to give um, value to that idea, right? Helen Caldecott, a woman that has worked, you know, pediatricians worked with kids for a long, long time and has been very active in a variety of peace movements and with the nuclear issues and so on and so forth. She said, it is as if the death of our planet is being grieved in the dreams of our children and i think that's true you know i think the world is always awake and dreaming and i think on occasion uh those images that are originating not in the human experience only but originating in the psyche of world make their way into a dream and that again is not esoteric or peculiar just think of the sense of a spirit of place you know and we know that certain places have special significance for us and we know that in so many traditions around the world. There's a sense that, you know, there's a spirit of a tree or a spirit of a pond or so on and so forth. And so many, many people, in fact, many, many more people than not believe that places or landscapes or animals have certain qualities to them. And that those qualities, I think, sometimes make their way into images of dreams.
0: What do you mean by this expression, the psyche of nature? that an image could come from the psyche of nature.
1: Well, my sense is that nature, too, has a psyche. In other words, humans as a species, we are birthed from something. And I think that we are birthed from um, the natural world. And so as a result of us being part of the natural world, I believe that the natural world, in addition to humans, has a certain psyche or a certain psychological or uh, wouldn't call it psychological it's a human term but has a certain animating presence right so it's almost going back thousands of years to the fantasy of an animistic world that the world itself is enchanted or installed that the psyche of the natural world there's a cadence there's a life rhythm there's a kind of life force it's um something alive and active, the circle of life, includes not only humans, but the rest of the plants and the animals and landscapes and the creatures. And they, too, are part of the fabric of life that we are a participant in. So the psyche of nature refers to the kind of field of experience that includes the nature, uh, that, that which originates in nature, as well as that which informs human experience.
0: So when you think now of this seal that came in your dream, what do you imagine it was bringing to you as the message in your dream before this moment in the meeting, now that you're reflecting back on the whole sequence?
1: Well, in the meeting, I mean just speaking directly and and actually as to what happened, in the meeting it was simply a remembrance of that there's something more that's going on rather than what My rational mind was telling me, you know, that there was something more that was being asked in that moment than what I had figured out uh, rationally and out of my experience that I was going to contribute and advocate on behalf of, that that seal had something in addition, a different kind of knowledge, a different kind of intelligence that was being asked for. So what I did there in that particular instance was simply pause, listen, and and wait for whatever else was brewing in a kind of what I would call imaginative way that was brewing inside that had not surfaced yet. And I waited for that impulse to present. And then I went on with what it was that I wanted to say. So that's what happened in that circumstance. Now, when I'm dreamtending and working with people, you know, what I suggested earlier that seems so um, different, is that we would actually go further than what I just said. And we get to no seal. Who are you? Remember the questions. Who are you? What are you up to? What's happening with you? And you begin to befriend SEAL or to tend to SEAL as if SEAL is a living, imaginal entity. Not a person like me, or not a SEAL like is in the ocean. An imaginal presence in the psyche of imagination and and that includes both us and the natural world. And you get to know, who are you, SEAL? What are you about? What do you bring? What do you know? And unfortunately, when we go there, we often hit a lot of grief because so many, of, what is it, 95% of the, of the big fish in the sea are no longer. They're gone now. I mean, they're extinct. So where does that spirit live if not in the dream time, you know? Where is it possible to still connect to the intelligence of these creatures or these landscapes that are very, very, very limited at this point in, in, in human experience? So it seems to me that that would be one place to access. Now, I just went off a little bit, so going back directly to your question. I would get to know seal. Who are you? Who are you in my life? And I would have a dialogue. I might sketch a seal, and I might um, begin a conversation and notice subsequent dreams and see if seal shows up again uh, and begin to get to know who that particular seal is in my particular dream time great companion seal right great one I'll tell you one thing next time I go to a board meeting I might just after this conversation I might bring a little image of seal and put it right next to (laughs) my agenda my pad of papers and have seal right there to remind me to take a breath and to listen into my my intuition and and, uh, you know inspiration
0: now, Steve, I know you teach dreamtending at the Pacifica Graduate School, and I'm curious to know, if you put your work in dreamtending in context with the other types of approach to dream interpretation, which have been offered through Jungian approaches, Freudian approaches, what do you see is the unique contribution of dream tending to the whole field of dream interpretation.
1: Oh uh, yeah, there is a real unique uh, contribution, and um, people respond in extraordinary ways to it. The unique contribution—it's—it's uh, it, it's on the tree, right? Of Freud and Jung and Hillman. It's on that tree. It's—it's it's a tradition of just taking dreams. Uh, I mean, listening to dreams as if they have value. Just that in and of itself is something different than what ordinarily happens in in modern culture. So just that. And yet you're asking a further question, which is how is dream tending in particular unique and different from these other approaches and what's its contribution? I think the, the biggest deal is that when you tend to a dream through dream tending, you're not analyzing as you would in a Jungian approach. You're not looking for an amplification as to how this dream relates to the, the great stories of human experience. And again, I find that profoundly instructive and useful. Right? In the Freudian approach, you would link the dream image or figure back to a family of origin issue one way or another. You would imagine it as a manifest image, and you're looking for its latent meaning, to put it most simply and most classically. Right? In dream tending, you're doing neither of those. it's a much more, to use a big, long word, phenomenological approach. In other words, you're looking at the image on behalf of itself, not going away from the image into an explanatory system, but allowing the image to come to life and evoke the deep imagination and present itself, and then it allows us to have a relationship with it. And that's so different, very different than either the Jungian or the Freudian. Of course, Jung himself, and we know that the Red Book was so extraordinarily popular there for a while, and still is, was sketching the images. He was sculpting the images, right? He he was really evolving, uh, really bringing himself to the images as if they had an imaginal presence and getting to know them. I mean, his inspiration comes from Philemon and from a variety of other images. So he befriended the images, you know, as so many have over the years. And in so many people, the storytellers, the women and men all through time that have really talked about dream and gotten to know these images and really began a, a relationship with them and really brought them into their lives as companions, so that um, in addition to their family members and their dear friends, they also have companions that are part of their lived experience. So I would say that is the thing that differentiates dream tending from. The traditional Jungian analysis or the Freudian interpretation
0: and what do you see as the relationship between our dreaming life and our waking life
1: um, good question the um, i think i think we're i think dreaming and waking. On one level, um, they're implicated and contiguous at all points. You know, uh, uh, Certainly waking life is different than dream life. First, our eyes are open and we're alert and we're involved in the issues that are right before us. Uh, when our eyes are closed, something else comes away, as I said earlier, and the imagination presents itself more fully. My hope is that, um, or my Sense is that to the extent that dreaming life and waking life find each other more intimately um, is the extent that we allow imagination to come forward in our lives more fully, so I think there 's a a real direct relationship and yet we have to differentiate as well right i mean i if when i 'm in my life i 'm asked to do things that require my Incredible. If, if, for example, I work with a lot of people that are afflicted physiologically, and it's not that I would say when you're in, you know, when I'm working with folks that um, are challenged with cancer or afflicted with cancer, I'm not going to say, "Don't go to your physician and work with, you know, all the new innovation." In fact, some of the smartest and the brightest people in our culture have developed these extraordinary machines and medicines that really are supportive and helpful. Um, on the other hand, in addition to pulling from that kind of more rational um, intelligence that, that really moves towards effective and helpful and supportive um, medicines and cures, in addition to that, the dreaming psyche, the imaginative psyche, also can contribute. So when I'm listening to dreams of people that are afflicted, I'm listening to the medicines that are available in the images. I know I just shifted into a whole other topic. But all I'm wanting to say there is that the dream life offers itself to the imagination and it has very practical, concrete effects. When dream images come, they will impact or influence our behavior and they too will you know, stimulate the immune system and they will create a certain kind of medicinal response. So it's a kind of both and rather than separation. And that's kind of what I'm after, dream life and awake life, knowing one another.
0: Is it fair to say that you think our dreams are here to instruct and help us in some way, that they have this sort of positive, beneficial agenda, quote unquote, if you will, if we're able to tune in and listen to what the images want to give us?
1: Uh, Yeah, you know, in, in the now thousands of dreams that I've worked with, I would say the answer is yes, and I don't want to be overly uh, romantic about it because dreams come and they're frightening sometimes. As I said earlier, they're intolerable. They're very difficult. We have to wrestle with them. They wrestle with us. They're torturous at times. Um, Of course, sometimes they're ecstatic and loving and all that. Uh, However, what I've noticed through all these years is that when we tend to the dream, Particularly in the ways that I'm talking about, when we attend to them, in turn, they will tend to us. Now it takes time, right? I don't want to imagine or uh, or even lead one to believe that it's a, a simple, immediate process. On the other hand, when you really spend the time with dreams, and that's the book Dream Tending has the particular methods of how to do that. If you spend time with with the dream and really get to know it. Even the most scary of images, you know, it comes for a purpose. I mean, why else would it come, right? That goes back to the psyche of nature. Why else would a dream come? It's not here to kill us, right? Uh, Nature will do us in at some point. That's part of being human. I mean, we're all predisposed to be disposed at some point. At the same time, you know, there is that instinct, alive and active in each of us, that wants expression and wants to, to... reveal itself more fully. So I think dreams are part of that organicity of life. And I think the answer to the question simply is yes, I think there is a positive intention at whatever stage of life we're in. And I think dreams do come with that intention.
0: Okay, so you were talking about people with cancer and how dreams may bring images that could be beneficial for them to work with. And I'm curious, would you think it's the exact same approach if somebody had an illness, and asked themselves, I'm just going to draw whatever images come to mind right now. I'm in a waking state, I'm going to draw images, and then I'm going to work with whatever images come through. That that would be similar to working in a dream-tending way with images that came from dreams. Same process? Different process?
1: Uh, Yeah, I just... (laughs) um, What I'm chuckling about is... Uh, just offered a workshop this last weekend, working with people with affliction and talking about the healing uh, capacity of dreams in relation to cancer. Um, So, um, yes and no. Yes, this approach can be applied to kind of what one would call a kind of active imagination, and you start by drawing your cancer, and then uh, you begin to engage with a kind of imaginal process and a a dialogue and so on and so forth. So I do believe that working with those kinds of awake images, if you will, or waking dreams, if you will, and working these methods will bring great benefit. On the other hand, I also believe that when it originates in the dream time from the psyche itself, uh, when our eyes are closed, there's... There's a different kind of intelligence, I think, perhaps, that's at the root of those images. It's not so filtered through our, our mind or through our, our best hopes or our intentions. It's not part of um, our rational thinking. It has, a, it has a different beginning place. So, yes, I think you can work with pictures, and I do often and frequently when I'm working with people, um, and they are pictures, and that's, you know, the difference. They are pictures that I can work with, and they will stimulate imagination, and they will move forward and be supportive. When I'm working with dreams, some different habits, and because I think they originate from, a, let's say, a deeper source, to put it simply. And I I have a lot of faith in that deeper source. I mean, the body is always dreaming, right? I mean the body when when cancer oh, okay. comes hold, when any illness hold on comes. a second
0: can can you explain what you mean by that? That's a very interesting phrase. The body is always dreaming.
1: Well, yeah, and it's really a simple idea. When cancer comes or any affliction, you know, the symptom or, or the illness itself will present through the body into the dream imagery. It's it's almost causal, really. I mean, one thing leads to the next. If some and in fact, even before the onset of affliction and illness, often the image will present first because subliminally, you know, we're picking up the imbalance that's going on in in our bodies and that will evoke an image and the image will present in a dream. Now of course you have to have some experience in listening to dreams and working in dreams to differentiate and figure out what's what. Um, and you can't impose that. One has to be open to listening deeply and, and offering a set of questions and so on and so forth and being responsible in other words it would be irresponsible to say hey this image comes so this means you have this and therefore you need to do that that would be absolutely irresponsible so no on the other hand i might get curious you know if if for example let me just give a concrete example if for example i'm in a house okay and it's a house that is the place where i'm living so already it's a familiar place and a house is one of the images that people worldwide will always dream about. And a house, more often than not, will pick up something of our own personhood, our own bodies, because it's our house, right? It's the structure that we inhabit. So there's a natural tendency to imagine the psyche using that as an image that will present ourselves. And let's imagine in the house, in the room of the living, the living room, there is something out of the ordinary, So let's imagine there is um, a vine growing, and in that vine there's a, a pumpkin. So now I have a pumpkin in the living room of this house, and I notice upon closer look that in the pumpkin it's infested with maggots of some sort, right, or something. And I'm thinking, hmm, that's out of the ordinary. That's peculiar. In the living room of my house is this pumpkin that's infested in such a way. What could that suggest? Okay. Now, it may be a hundred things that it suggests. And remember what I'm saying. I don't interpret. I don't say this means that. If I would say, whoa, you have something terrible, some terrible ailment, and uh, this means that da-da-da-da-da, that would be, first, irresponsible, unethical, in my mind, and secondly, it's not accurate. On the other hand, let's imagine that image comes a second, a third, and a fourth time. Certainly, I would get curious, and certainly, I would begin to think, about that image in that place of the living room in the house that I am currently inhabiting. And I would probably make a suggestion. I'm wondering when the last time you had a physical or you got a checkup or something like that. And then I would be working with you know highly trained physicians to really begin to think through what this is about. So the body is always dreaming in that context. And when we make gesture, so that's point one. And then when I'm talking about the body always dreaming, when we're waving our hands or making a gesture, it's as if the body is always in motion. And you could watch a body in motion as if it were a dream, right? A figure in the dream. So that would be the other idea. So I just shifted channels there. But the body is always dreaming both in the sense that it's picking up images from what's going on inside physiologically and the body is dreaming externally in the sense of the gestures that we make and the movements that we make. So you can read a body. Somebody's telling a story and then their arms are going in a certain way. You know, it's as if the body is dreaming.
0: Hmm. Now, Steve, I just have one final question for you. Our program's called Insights at the Edge. And I'm always curious to know what the edge is of someone's work, in this case, the work of dream tending what would you say is the question or the leading edge of your exploration in dream tending right now?
1: I'm committed to this idea of what we're calling the global dream initiative. We're just, just starting. And we've now in our third month and I've gathered around me a number of people that are very deeply rooted in dream and dream tending, extraordinary uh, academics and, um, people from a variety of different uh, uh, disciplines. And what I'm interested in at the moment is how the world is dreaming on behalf of itself and those images occurring in the dreams of people, particularly kids, because I've asked to work with kids a lot in the classroom, Master work with troubled adolescents a lot, people that have been incarcerated or in gangs. I mean, it's very practical stuff. It's just that I'm aware that nature is dreaming always and that the figures of her dream occur in the experiences of people and why i think that's so critical is because i think as we many of us do that you know the world is out of balance at the moment the planet is it's having a hard time and if we can listen into the intelligence of those images. That's what's at the edge. If we can listen to the intelligence of the images that originate in the psyche of nature that we call attention to, if we can listen carefully, we might gain a perspective and might gain uh, a way of seeing and being that would change the conversation. So, concrete example. I've been invited to attend uh, kind of a blue ribbon, I see, I don't know, I use that word two or three times now, but a top level um group of policy makers that are really thinking in terms of climate change and these are, are extraordinary people they're you know they're experts in their field, they're great scientists, some of them they're people that have been doing this work for a long long time, and we're going to be sitting in a room and talking about you know climate change and different policies and how to work with that okay now one way of doing that is to simply. Go with the body of science now. That's so compelling. That is now broadcast from A to Z, uh, and start there and continue the conversation and keep building on what we've what we've known and what we're trying to to move in terms of uh, everything from treaties to uh, global warming to you know the the nature of energy and fuel to deforestation and on and on the detoxification of the seas to, and it goes on right. That's one way of going, sitting in the room along with that. Another way of proceeding is to start from the beginning, right? I'm wondering what dreams people are having and what dreams, what images are coming in those dreams that inform that conversation, right? Now, rather than just saying a group of people had a whole number of dreams about tidal waves or a whole other group of people had uh, dreams of acid rain or earthquakes or something, that's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is simply to introduce the idea, just the idea, that the world is dreaming, just that, nothing more, and introduce some of the images that are coming to numbers of people internationally. Because this, we have people all over the world now that are contributing to this project. Just beginning to see the world from an imaginal point of view, just bringing Im- imagination into the conversation, opens folks to a different kind of consideration takes us off the map and into something else right and so that's what i believe is at the edge of dream tending at the moment is to bring dream tending into the issues of the day and particularly climate change and environmental um you know environmental issues
0: thank you well i wish you very swift and good fortune with such dream tending I've been speaking with Stephen Eisenstadt. With Sounds True, he's created a six session audio learning course on dream tending techniques for uncovering the hidden intelligence of your dreams. Steve, wonderful as always to talk with you, and I think I have a deeper appreciation of your work, and I'm grateful for that. Thank you.
1: You're welcome. Thank you. Nice talking with you.
0: SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.